Matthew chapter 19. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In Ephesians 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated, though. All right, so I brought the pink elephant in the room, center stage. Eight weeks, we've been casting a fairly lofty and laudable vision for the biblical view of marriage. We have been at the 30,000-foot view, saying this is what God, how God has designed marriage to be. This is how he is the great architect, and here's how it's supposed to work. Here's the roles of males and females. Here's what marriage is in its essence. And yet, if you're like me, whenever we, when we've, we've cast that lofty vision, there is a, an angst within us because we know that we live in a world in which marriage is often probably, we might say, most often, not like the vision that the Bible gives us. And in our day and age in particular, but really through all of human history, there have been troubled marriages. And marriage has not been what God designed it to be. And so there's been this thing called divorce, which is the, the destruction of marriage, the severing of marriage. And so we, I want to, as an addendum to this series, and then we're going to look at, next week will be our last in the series one more addendum next week, but this week we're going to look at the addendum of divorce. What does the Bible tell us about divorce? Is it allowed? If so, when is it allowed? Well, in our text today, these exact same questions are being asked of Jesus. The Pharisees, we see here in, beginning in chapter 19 of Matthew, are coming to Jesus and they're asking these, Jesus these exact same questions. Now, they, don't, they, don't, they already have their own views. What they're trying to do, as these um, serpent-like Pharisees often are seeking to do, is to get Jesus in trouble. Because in those, those days, um, there were two particular rabbinical views that had two very, very different ideas in regards to divorce. One had a very conservative view, which was essentially you could not ever get divorced except for adultery. That's one, the very conservative view. The second was that you could get divorced for almost any reason. And they quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4 where it uses the word uh, that there is something disgraceful about the wife. And so some of the more uh, progressive folks who wanted to please the people, and particularly the men in Israel, uh, began to take that over the years as being anything that displeases them about their wife. If she burns the toast, 
they may release her from the marriage and they can move on to find somebody who pleases them more. And the Pharisees know this and they're trying to bring their cultural narratives and debates to Jesus. And they're wanting Jesus to side with one of these two because that would then cause division amongst the ranks of those who maybe follow Jesus and it may get him in trouble so that some begin to hate him because of his particular views. But Jesus, in answering their question, says, I'm not playing ball. I'm not going, I'm going to tell a different story about marriage. I'm not going to simply be subject to your, the various questions and the cultural narratives of your day. Instead, he says this, I'm going to point you all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and the way God has designed marriage to be. This is the same thing that Paul does in Ephesians 5, right? Almost every time we see the Bible address marriage, it's pointing back to the creation mandate. And Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, if you remember at the very beginning of the series, the first um, installment of the series, we were asking the question, what is the essence of marriage? In other words, what is marriage? What is it? What is this thing that so many of us participate in? And I pointed at that time to this exact same phrase, that marriage is when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And that word united or cleave literally means to be glued together by a vow. We said there that the essence of marriage, what marriage is at its most core, is it is a covenant promise. It is a promise that is a permanent covenant promise. And Jesus points, as we did at the beginning of this series, he points back to that essence. And he said, this is the way marriage is supposed to be. Marriage at its essence is a covenant. A covenant that is to be exclusive between one man and one woman. And this makes sense. One cannot discuss the ending of a marriage unless we understand the essence of a marriage. If we're going to discuss the issue of divorce, we have to understand what it is that we are ending. And so in answering the question, is it lawful to be divorced, Jesus says, let's reframe the question. How does God view covenant marriage? How has he viewed it from the very beginning? And so everything I'm going to say this morning, it revolves around the covenant. Going back to that issue of marriage in its essence is a covenant between one man and one woman. It is to be permanent and exclusive. So... How are we to view divorce? We are to view the question of divorce in the light of the covenant. In other words, we are to shape our view around what the whole biblical narrative says around this idea of a covenant promise. And here's I want to see, hear, hear you, see you, have you hear three things that the Bible says about covenant in regards to marriage and divorce. The first thing is this. God loves the covenant. God loves it. To understand the narrative Around divorce, Jesus points back to the beginning to the Lord's first words about marriage. He takes us back to creation. And in doing so, I want you to hear how deeply God loves covenant promises. When Jesus talks about marriage, he's pointing back to this. And he describes it as leaving and cleaving and being joined together and yoked together in this permanent and exclusive relationship. It is not a contract where if one does their part and the other does their part, then they can stay together. It is a covenant that is designed to be indissolvable, permanent. It is a covenant where they are brought together in what is designed to be unbreakable, an un, a, a never-ending. I will never leave you. 
And so Jesus points back to this covenant, and then he says what in verse 6 of Matthew 19? Therefore, let no man, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He is saying that marriage, in its essence, is not just a promise between two people. It's also done in view of what God has done in bringing them together. If that covenant is an act of God, God's design and purpose for it is to be a covenant, an unbreakable, enduring, never stopping, never giving up, never leaving, never going anywhere till death do us part, never going to give up on you, never going to let you down, never going to run around and desert you. (laughs) 10 billion views by Rick Astley, you just got Rick rolled, have to be true. And this covenant relationship is defined, as we see, by one flesh union. Knowing and intimacy is the most important relationship on earth. It is to be an unguarded intimacy and friendship, nothing to hide and nothing to prove. And therefore, marriage is seeing and staying. And frankly, if we actually look, the stories that we, of love that we get most enthralled by, it is these kinds of stories. It is when the most profound literature and the most cinematically beautiful movies, it captures scenes of staying love, an unquenchable love. Now, it normally doesn't show the reality of unquenchable love. It usually shows this kind of romanticized, like glitzy version where everybody is overly beautiful and lovely. But, but in reality, the Bible shows us the very difficult love. And when we see something that's actually truly profound in movies or literature, it's a love that overcomes the difficulties of our humanity, that loves in the face of getting overweight and being sick and being disappointed with the one that we have bound ourselves to. But when, you, when a movie that captures both the real difficulties of life together and yet shows people who stay, who stay and persevere, it takes our breath away. Let me just give you an example. The first four minutes of Up do this profoundly. You can watch the first four minutes of Up and you will be in tears and you can stop the rest of the movie if you really want to. Carl and Ellie, you see their marriage in this montage in the first three to four minutes of that book. They meet as little kids and they have tons of fun together and then they grow up and they fall in love and they get married and you you see how their love blossoms and they enjoy each other. They have picnics together. And they're looking at the clouds together and they're making shapes of love together. But then the love gets real. The montage shows them finding out that they are infertile, going through disease, going through trial, suffering devastation, losing their savings to emergencies. And then it shows Ellie getting sick and Carl there holding her hand until she breathes her last. And Pixar knew, we gotcha. We got you from the word go. Because the most compelling vision of love is a marriage that stays. An unbroken, I'm never leaving you kind of love. We are moved by that love. And the reason that God told Adam and Eve to love like this is because he was placing in the center of his universe a metaphor, a metaphor that was pointing to his love for his people at the very center of the human relational life and indeed at the very place of continuation of humanity. He placed a metaphor at the cellular level, at the familial level of his relationship with his people. It is reflecting the reality, the image-bearing reality of the love of our God and the heart of our God that we have a covenantal loving God 
who is never stopping and never giving up in his love. And it reaches its zenith of display in the cross of Jesus Christ, where the groom, who has seen the depths of his bride, loves her anyways, and he stays. And so, now that sets up, I say all that, what is kind of probably felt like review, where we've already been, to give you a sense of what God values. He delights in the covenant of marriage. It reflects his covenant love. So when I ask you, how do you think God feels? How do you think the Holy Spirit within us reacts? How do you think God has wired creation to respond when the covenant of marriage is broken and marred and shattered? It grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of God. It distresses him. And he has indeed actually wired the world to ache over the shattering of marriages. Divorce comes from just an earthly perspective with tragic consequences. One of the the things that divorce is often blamed on is is someone will say, I I, I just, I don't want my, my kids to see a marriage in which there's conflict. And there are definitely places in which that conflict is so violent that you must remove those children. And I'll address that in a little bit. But the stats show that marriage is incalculably destructive to children. The high school dropout rates of kids of divorce is double those of kids who do not come from broken homes. They are more likely to have behavioral problems. They are even more likely to experience a whole host of physical, physical and psychological problems. They are twice as likely to attempt suicide. So when we say, it, wasn't, it isn't fair for my kids to grow up in a household where there's conflict, where their parents don't love each other that well. Might I say, you need to rethink that. Because God has wired us to look around the world and see pictures and dramas and plays of his love. And when we, as children, see parents who don't love each other, who don't keep their word, it shatters their sense of reality. He has wired it in nature to break in the face of marriage, when marriage breaks. And so as Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Our Lord is passionate about the covenant of marriage. He he loves it. He delights in it. And he has placed it in the fabric of creation. He has placed it as a key cog in the flourishing of human beings. He has placed it at the core atomic level of our world that is known as the family. This has the very plain cry, therefore, if we ask the question, when should we get divorced? The answer is, please don't. Don't get divorced. Don't get divorced. But might I also say this? To those of you who aren't necessarily considering divorce, would you please protect your covenant? It is the covenant and that covenant love that he cherishes. Take delight in the covenant with which God has joined you. To those in the midst of marriages spiraling out of control, I have heard these words spoken very often. How did we get here? How do we get here? And the sole cry of regret is, oh, I wish we had done more. I wish we had done more. I took my marriage for granted. And so the call here is not just don't get divorced. It's also for those of you who are married and things seem fine is this, protect the covenant. Nourish and cherish your spouse. Do things to make your marriage thrive. And that's the second thing I want you to see is God's protection of your covenant. 
God's protection. We now get into what is often discussed as the ethical and technicalities around divorce. We get into the biblical legal mode with its sharp edges and seeming cold indifference. But hear me, the desire of the Lord in these technicalities is to protect the covenant. That that is what he's after. Now let me give you the textual context of what Jesus gives here in this discussion of a divorce with the Pharisees. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees respond by pointing to this clause in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gives procedural instructions around the matter of divorce. And they're talking there and they're referring to these laws to regulate the practice of divorce. You see, it doesn't condone divorce. It's not commanding divorce. But Moses is saying, because of your hardness of hearts, because you have often mar and destroy and shatter marriage, if this is going to happen, you must go about it in this way, in a way that protects the innocence. And in particular, this is incredibly important, particularly in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, to protect the vulnerable, to protect wives, women, who, if with their husbands, by the way, it was always referred to husbands divorcing their wives because wives in almost every culture had no rights to divorce their husband. They were viewed as property. Now, the New Testament changes that. Actually, there's actually a place in 1 Corinthians that says wives should not divorce their wives. Their husbands, in about this, you have to do it in a way that's actually going to keep people safe. Now, Jesus' day, the law was, had this loophole to justify divorce. That's what they used Deuteronomy 24. They wanted a loophole to be able to justify any divorce. And so those, those who had a weak or thin reasons for divorce could hold up Deuteronomy in 24 and said, Moses told us we could. It was not a command, though. It was a concession to wickedness. And so in response, Jesus provides the exception clause. He actually takes up the very conservative approach here. And he says this, yes, but you can only be divorced because of, except for, for Im- sexual immorality. And he goes on, he does almost, as he does almost every time, he, just, he discusses divorce. And he says that to be divorced without meeting these, his exceptions, without meeting the significant criteria that Jesus puts out and the word of God puts out, and to enter in with a sexual partner other than your spouse or enter into a secondary covenant with another person, he says that is adultery. That to divorce your spouse, you cause her and you, if you enter into a second marriage, to commit adultery. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I do not agree that your marriage was over when you said your marriage was over. You wouldn't got a piece of paper, a certificate of divorce, and you may have the piece of paper, but I did not agree with it. And since marriage is done before me, and I'm the one who places people together, unless you've met my exceptions and my rules, you are not divorced. God did not agree with you that your marriage is over. God did not see your marriage covenant as being fully and completely broken. If marriage is instituted by him, no earthly given certificate of divorce can undo what he has said. If Jesus were sitting down as your marital counselor and you explain to him what is going on in your marriage and you were to say, what should I do? His response to you would be this, protect and keep your covenant. Protect and keep your covenant. Don't break your covenant. Now, he would hear your complaints, and he would hear your grievances. He would be angry with the ways in which you have been wounded. He would be patient with your weaknesses, but the end of the conversation would always be this. Keep your covenant. 
If you say, well, I already got the divorce certificate. In fact, and in fact, I'd like to marry this other person. He would simply look at you and say, keep your covenant. And yet we do see that Jesus does offer the exception. The exception is there. And I want you to hear the exception as Jesus' desire to protect covenant and marriage. He is protecting the whole idea of a covenant. In other words, what I want you to see here is that there are some times when there are such activities in the midst of a covenant that are so grievous and so destructive that by the inherent nature of that activity, it destroys the covenant. Let me give you an illustration of what divorce is. Divorce is amputation. Marriage is described as one flesh union, and so divorce is amputation. It is radical. It is drastic. It is disfiguring. It will mar you for the rest of your life in some way, shape, or form. And yet we know that there are times when amputation is necessary to save a life. But amputation must always be the last-ditch effort, the last effort. It would be horrendous malpractice if you were to go to a doctor and you had a splinter in your finger and you would be like, I can't get it out. And the doctor would be like, okay. And he calls the people in with the saws. He's like, hey, listen, this is going to be a problem to take this splinter out. And I see this person getting a lot more splinters. So why don't we just take the hand off? Or if you're like, some of us, this is how the, the, the malpractice, would be absolute malpractice. If you got a calf, a cut on your calf doing yard work and they're like, oh, that's rough. Why don't we just take it off from right below the knee? Right there. But there are times, there are times when that severing is necessary in order to protect a life and in the, in the case of marriage to protect the covenant. And that is why adultery is the first thing that it's pointing to here. The exception cause is given because there are some acts that are so destructive to the actual covenant itself that you've destroyed the initial covenant. So here's the exceptions the Bible gives us. One, adultery. And by this I mean physical, one flesh union with another person. It is never demanded that if your spouse were to cheat on you in this way, but it is permitted. Because adultery, by its very nature, severs the covenant because you have reconnected yourself to someone else. And second, the second exception, it's far more divisive amongst pastors and biblical scholars, and that is one called abandonment or desertion that we see in 1 Corinthians 7. This is where an unbelieving spouse abandons and refuses to live with or care for their believing spouse. This is where the one flesh union is broken because an unbeliever has abandoned the marriage. And the reason for these exceptions is that there is, and there is a disagreement around these. It is very difficult. I'm going to talk about that difficulty a little bit more in a second. But I believe Scripture teaches that no one is permitted by God to break their covenant. No one is permitted by God to break their covenant. But there are times when a spouse, because the other spouse has done something so destructive that it has fractured and broken the covenant, that the other spouse gets to acknowledge that, yes, the covenant is indeed broken. That when one spouse goes and connects themselves with someone else, the offended spouse, the neglected spouse can say, they have destroyed the covenant. And God does not say that they must remain living in a covenant 
that is no longer there. God is not encouraging divorce, but where the covenant has already been destroyed, God is not forcing one spouse to act like it hasn't. And so that's adultery. So where there's been adultery, there's been such a fracture in the covenant, where the whole consummation and seal of marriage and sexual union, where that has been done by one spouse with somebody outside the marriage, that they have now connected themselves sexually to someone else in another covenant with them. And that frees the offended spouse to end that marriage legally. Second, abandonment. This is where it's a lot harder to find and therefore it's much more controversial. I believe this includes acts of negligence, destructive and abusive behavior in such a pervasive and unrepentant manner that it indicates both an unbelieving and an unrepentant heart that has abandoned the covenant. These are sinful acts that not only deteriorate the trust in the covenant relationship, but also denigrate and destroy the dignity of the spouse who is being hurt. Now, two questions I want to answer here. One, what about the situation of abuse? I want to speak really specifically to that for just a second. If you're an object of blatant abuse, if you are in danger of harm, physical harm, if your children are in danger, then you are to separate yourself from an abuser. You have an ethical responsibility to protect both yourself and those image bearers under your care. It is a high priority biblically to protect life, to protect image bearers. And you should remove yourself from that situation immediately. And you should involve the local authorities. They are the ones who are designed to help protect you. They are there as the sword to take care of such evil men or evil spouses who would take part in such abuse. Second, how do you know when the unrepentance has reached the point of true abandonment? This is so complex because it is so messy. There is no story that is the same and no situation that is the same. An activity that is destructive does not necessarily mean that there are immediate grounds for divorce, but a separation may be necessary in order to keep one spouse safe. And maybe that separation needs to go on for a very, very long time. In order to keep the spouse and other dependents safe while at the same time giving space for the offending spouse to be some sober to their sin and allowing the necessary time for repentance to be truly displayed over a long period of time. If a spouse, whether they claim belief or not, is unwilling to repent... After a long period of time, they may be, by a church, declared to be an unbeliever, and the offended spouse, the hurt spouse, may then have biblical grounds for divorce on the ground of abandonment. It is both for the safety of the aggrieved spouse to not be the one who oversees that process of repentance, right? We're not sending people who are being abused, abused back into be, you get to be the arbiter of what is abuse or not abuse, But it is also the responsibility that God has given elders and pastors of local churches to be the ones who declare whether someone is an unbeliever. And so therefore, if you're married to somebody who is claiming belief, and yet they're living in a way of such unrepentance, you bring them to the church. And you move through the long, difficult process of ultimately getting the church involved to the point where you, we, you have the church backing you saying, this person is unrepentant, and they have abandoned the covenant of your marriage. You might ask, what does that mean for my situation? 
While it is simply not possible for me to say all that needs to be said pastorally to fit your specific situation, I have reached the limits of what this moment can hold. So please come talk to me if there are questions, if there is confusion or hurt, get wise counsel. I don't expect that all of you would accept my invitation to have the elders and pastors involved in your marital problems, but I would want you to hear, all of you to hear the invitation that we will walk with you as with much grace and truth, which with our own faltering and failures as well, but as much grace and truth as we can in your situation. I recognize that for some of you, this, you are distressed by this teaching, especially in our culture that views marriage as the means of our own personal happiness or our own self-fulfillment. And so seemingly narrow exceptions like only adultery or only really abandonment and abuse are the only exceptions. Well, if those are the only exceptions to getting out of marriage, you're like, I'm going to be stuck with a person in which they're just simply not emotionally available. Or I just don't like them. And you're stuck with somebody with all their wounds and their warts, and you might say, well, then I might as well not get married. And I would say to you, you're on good ground. That was how the disciples responded. This is not radical only to our culture. The disciples heard Jesus' grounds for divorce, and they go, well, I don't think I want that. I shouldn't get married then, and perhaps you shouldn't. But if you are, these are the grounds. And so what hope do you have for your marriage in the midst of this? Here's your third point this morning revolving around covenant, God's offer of a new covenant. Let's go back to the narrative of Scripture. If you remember, we've said this a couple of times, we've given to this, this metaphor that God is married to his people he makes a covenant with them. He is the groom, and they are his bride. And what did his bride do? We looked at this at the drama of marriage a number of weeks back. She committed adultery, and she did so over and over and over again, and God would chase after his people, and he would bring them home, and then she would run off again, and they would play the game over and over and over again. And eventually, you know what God did? God got divorced. Did you know this? This is what the minor prophets and the major prophets come and tell Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, the Lord tells Jeremiah to warn the people of Judah about their idolatry. And he says to Judah, you can see what happened to Israel because of her adultery. And he says this in verse 8, she, Judah, saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, and she too went and played the whore. The same is true in the story of Hosea. Hosea goes and gets his wife, but then eventually God actually tells Hosea to divorce Gomer. He divorces her. Hosea, who's the living metaphor for God the groom to his people, his bride, Hosea brings a covenant lawsuit, a divorce against his adulterous wife, and so he divorces Gomer. This is the story of our God. Your God has been divorced, but, but, God sees his divorce, his legal divorce, not as final, but as disciplinary, and he longs for restoration. You see, the divorce God gives to his people, he does so in order to woo them home. He says, you don't want my blessings? You will have none of my blessings. And the purpose of divorce is discipline to bring his bride to her senses. And so Gomer is enjoying the provision of Hosea and the pursuit of her lovers. And Hosea says, well, that's it. I'm going to put a hedge of thorns, he says, around you. So that all you have 
is the curses of the covenant. No longer do you have my protection and my provision. But he does so in order for Israel, his people, to go, oh no. Oh no. And so in Jeremiah and Hosea, what do we see? We see the prophets of God. After God has given his bride her divorce papers, we hear the prophets of God prophesying of a future day when God the groom, when God the perfect husband will do all that is necessary to bring his bride back in. And he calls that, when he brings her back in, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. Hosea 3, verses 1 through 5, this is how that story goes. Hosea has given his wife the divorce papers and says, The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who has been loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love their cakes of raisins, so I bought her. He ransoms her with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. You know when that time period was? The 400 years when they were in slavery, and then they came back, and there was no kings. There was no persons who ruled over them. And then it says this, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Who is the son of David? It is Jesus. In other words, Hosea is pointing and saying, the groom is coming. And he's going to remarry you, and he's going to bring you into a new marriage. God ran after his wayward bride. He runs after his divorced spouse, and he ransoms her to himself. He died. He died for her to cover over her sins that she committed in the previous covenant with him. And he washes her of those sins, and he invites her into a new covenant where she is pure. And where he gives her a heart that longs for him. And he places upon her the white robe of his righteousness that can never, ever, ever be taken off. This is the story of the Bible. And so let me apply it to three different groups of people in this room briefly to close. One, to those of you who have been unlawfully divorced and there is no going back. You were divorced in the past and perhaps your previous spouse has been remarried or perhaps you have been remarried. You're remarried, but your divorce was not on biblical grounds. Jesus does say to you that that second marriage was an act of sin. But that second marriage does not continue as an act of sin. Your second marriage is still a marriage, and you are to embrace it as a marriage treasured by God and to be treasured by you. God placed right in the biblical storyline of Jesus' ancestry the story of David and Bathsheba. And Bathsheba becomes the mother of Solomon, who becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus himself. He redeems even marriages that begin in the lowest of places. You may have had a bad second marriage beginning, but it was probably not a, you know, essentially a murder. It probably wasn't a murder and an adultery at the same time. And yet that's where Jesus' line comes from. Hear this, your eternal spouse ran after you. He has redeemed you and he has covered your sin. And that spouse, from whom you were once alienated, the one and eternal, he is with you. That marriage, your earthly marriage to your previous spouse may never be redeemed or restored. But there is an eternal one that will be and is restored. Second, to those who have been deeply wounded in the covenant of marriage, 
and have been divorced because of that wounding. You had reasons and good reasons and biblical reasons for the divorce. Divorce has caused you so much pain and it's caused others in your life so much pain. And this morning my hope has been that this sermon essentially rings like this. Divorce grieves the heart of God and it has horrendous purposes so please, please, please don't get divorced. But in saying that, in saying that, I believe I'm saying with the whole sense of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, and the word of scripture. But I fear in doing so that for those of you have, that have been legally and rightfully divorced against your desire, who pursue, pursue divorce as a last ditch effort to get away from an abusive person, that you may feel illegitimate guilt or shame this morning. And I wanna say to you, you've been wounded deeply by an earthly spouse. And I am so sorry that the relationship that was meant to reflect the beauty and life and joy and healing and delight of God over you did the exact opposite in your life. I'm so sorry. And understand that what happened to you in that marriage, it grieves the heart of your God too. And the story of reconciliation in the gospel offers to you a perfect spouse who covers over your shame and who invites you into a relationship of healing. He is tender, and he is kind, and he is yours. Third person, to those of you who have lost hope for your marriage, I'm thinking of those who maybe you are married and you wish you could get divorced, and maybe you actually have clear biblical grounds for doing so. You have a spouse spouse that has committed adultery, a spouse that has lived in unrepentant sin for years and years and years, Or I'm speaking to those in the room who have gotten divorced, but neither party has gotten remarried. To you, I say this, our God is a reconciling God. God is a God who turns ashes into beauty. Look at the story of Christ and his bride. Your story and God's goodness, it may not be over. Might you consider running after your wayward spouse as Christ has run after you? Might you consider in faithfulness to that first covenant, if you are divorced, waiting for them to come back? No one deserves it. But we do so because we believe in a God of Isaiah 41 who turns deserts into pools of water, who turns parched earth into flowing springs. Would you consider praying for God to heal your marriage? to restore hope to that again? Would you consider waiting on God, maybe for years, to do such a thing? It happens, and it actually happens more than you might think. When those who are faithful and they wait, then they wait, and they wait, and God enables them to give grace to the spouse who has hurt them and cheated on them, committed adultery against them, to show them grace and invite them home. Perhaps you hear that and you say, no spouse can do that. No spouse can do that. Close with this. I heard the story of a couple who were married for 10 years, and then they separated. Got legally divorced, but they never got remarried. They were dating other people. And one day, though, the husband had kidney failure. He needed a new kidney. And he was dating other people, but... The person who ultimately stepped forward and was willing to give him a kidney was his ex-wife. And while in the hospital, he's sitting there waiting to, sitting there in the hospital bed after having been given a kidney by his ex-wife, and he thinks to himself, 
there is a woman in this hospital who is willing to give up her kidney for me, and I am not married to her? I'm an idiot. And he got out of the hospital, and he repented, and he went home. You say, who has a spouse like that? You could have made up that story. Who has a spouse who would hold out for years like that and be that generous and that faithful and give themselves up like that? You do. You have a spouse like that. Who, when you ran from him, said, I will lay down my life for you. Might you cling to that? May that empower you maybe to run after a wayward spouse of your own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I confess that even that last illustration, that whole call feels like pie in the sky to me. So I, I pray that, that that reality of a spouse who gives him as himself like you have given yourself to us would take hold in my heart. That I would sense in that the, the power and the spring of living water in which I can love anybody in my household and anybody in my life with a never giving up, never forsaking, always and forever kind of love. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are struggling this morning. And this, to them, feels like pie in the sky. Heavenly Father, I pray that the spirit of the living God would fall fresh on them. Would you shine the spotlight of the Spirit upon Jesus Christ and his love for them? May they bathe deeply in that, drink from the well of your love. When you strengthen them to forgive a spouse that they may never, ever be restored to, to love a spouse who is difficult to love, to call a spouse home who has run off. Oh, Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.